a command to the church. In 1879, a chemist by the name of Dr. Joseph Lawrence set out to create uh, something that's probably sitting on many of your bathroom counters right now, and that is Listerine. Uh, So I don't know if you know this, but Listerine was not created originally as a plaque-destroying mouthwash, but originally it was created as a antiseptic, a, a surgical antiseptic. 133 years ago, uh, that's how it was created. And then later it was repurposed to be a foot scrub. And then it was repurposed again to be a corn a foot corn softener. And then in the 1920s, it got its most lucrative uh, use, and that is as a mouthwash. Now, I'm not talking about that fresh burst or that cool man, but I'm talking about that gold one. You know, that one, if you gargle it like one second too long, it'll take a layer of skin off your mouth. <laughs> I'm talking about that original one. That's how it originally was created. It was a surgical antiseptic. The same thing with Coca-Cola. Most of us know Coca-Cola. It is a brand name, but it was not created as a soft drink, but actually it was originally invented as an alternative to morphine addiction. And John Pemberton, who who is the creator of Coca-Cola, made it because he actually was addicted to morphine and he wanted to curb the addiction. And so he created this soft drink and now Uh, We pay top dollar in order to drink it. The point I'm trying to raise and lift to you tonight by bringing up Listerine and Coca-Cola is that both of them became widely successful based on being repurposed. It was not widely successful based on the original way that it was created, but it was successful after it was repurposed. My fear is that that could be the church. My fear is that that could be many of our church plants. Could we be getting the command that Jesus originally came to the church and saying, that's nice, but I want to repurpose the purpose of the church and try to make it more successful by focusing on other things than what Jesus originally commanded. Matthew 28 is Jesus' first command to the church. It is very important for us to understand that. And and really what you see happening is Jesus has died at this point. He has been resurrected at this point, but he has not ascended into heaven. And so what you see is Jesus' final instructions for his church. And Jesus' final instructions for his church must be the first priority of our church. We must over and over again go back to this passage and see what Jesus said about the church. Now, there's two inferences that I really want to point out before we dig back into the text. The first one is that Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, is a command. It is not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It is not optional. Jesus said it as a command. And the second thing I want to point out is it's a command to the church. And although it has individual implications and there's some individualistic stuff that we can draw from it, ultimately, Jesus is giving this as a requirement for his body, for the local church and for his universal church, which is all of the believers in Jesus Christ. And you know how I know that this is a command to the church? Because Jesus talks about baptism. And that's an ordinance or that's something that he's commanded for the church to do. You cannot baptize yourself. That's called a bath. But (laughs) when the church baptizes you, that's baptism. And so I really need to point that out because it's easy for us to hear this tonight and say, you know what, that sounds good, but I don't have to do it. No, it's a command. And it is for... The church. And so let us consider the passage before us together. And how I usually do is just walk through verse by verse and let the scriptures uh, breathe, it, breathe on us and preach to themselves. Verse 16 
Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Verse 17. And when they saw him, some worshiped, but some doubted. When Matthew put his pen to the paper, he decided to let us in on the fact that the disciples were divided in their emotions. The scripture just told us that some of the disciples were worshiping, but some of them were not worshiping. Some of them were doubting. Now, the Greek verb here implies hesitation or indecision. This doesn't mean that this isn't unbelief. In fact, this is the second time that this word doubted is used in the book of Matthew. It was also used in Matthew chapter 14 when Peter's walking on the water and he starts to sink and Jesus reaches out his hand. And what does Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That does not mean Peter didn't trust Jesus. That does not mean that Peter didn't believe in Jesus. That simply meant that Peter had a moment of hesitation. Please consider that the disciples here just saw their Savior die and be resurrected. And so they are confused at what is going on around them. And so what you see on this mountain is divided disciples. Some of them are worshiping and some of them are doubting. And this always proves to me and confirms the truthfulness of the scriptures. The reason is because if I'm Matthew and I'm writing the accounts of what was taking place and we're about to start a ministry that's going to take the world by storm, I'm probably going to leave out that some of our boys are doubting. I'm probably not going to put that in. If if Casey and Lorenzo uh, decided to put more people into leadership, they're probably not going to put the guy that's doubting the mission in leadership. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus does. Jesus does not see the two sets of disciples and say, well, I'm going to talk to the worshipers and give them the great commission and this command, and I'm going to dismiss the doubters. Jesus gives this command to both sets of disciples that are there. That becomes very important. Now, this sounds like a shaky way to start a ministry that's going to take the world by storm. Why would you not dismiss the doubters and say, you know what? I cannot work with you. Let me just deal with the worshipers. What this shows us is something very unique about Jesus. And that is that when Jesus chooses people that he wants to use, he does not choose people that have it all together, but he typically chooses people that are weak, that are feeble, that are sinful. How do I know that? Because he called me to plant a church. And like, when I think about that, like every week when people come to our church, I'm always confused on, like, I'm looking around, like, is somebody else supposed to be unpacking the word of God? Why? Because I'm one of the ones that would have been doubting. I know you're probably in here like, no, not me. I would have been one of the disciples worshiping Jesus. I can probably guarantee you that you would have been in the group of doubters. And we always read the scriptures thinking we're going to be the hero, but the truth is we would do nothing differently than the ones that were doubting. This shows us how Jesus chooses people. Our church is going through the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we just started it last week. And the first verse of 1 Peter talks about the elect exiles, and elect simply means God's chosen. That's who God decides to choose, and God always chooses differently than you and I. We choose people that we think should be on the team. Jesus chooses people that we would never put on the team. Like when I used to go to the basketball court when I was younger, I, I, what you would do in, on the Northeast, you would, I don't know if y'all do that here, we'd sit on the sideline and wait for one of the teams to lose. And once that team lost, we would say, I got next. And when you got next, you would pick your team off the guys that were sitting waiting to play. And typically when I picked, I picked the best players 
Because when you, when you won the game, you stayed on the court and the loser got off the court. And so I'd pick people that I knew had a great jump shot. I'd pick people that I knew had great defense and great ability to rebound. Jesus doesn't choose like that. Jesus does not choose the best people. Jesus looks at the bench and say, that's my squad. He chooses the person with the teeny shorts, with the, with the long socks, with the headband. That's who Jesus chooses to use. But let's be real. We would not choose people like that. But that is what makes me worship Jesus. Because if Jesus only chose people that had it all together, 90% of this room would not be chosen. And the 10% that think you would be chosen, you probably wouldn't be chosen either. (laughs) And so Jesus chooses people that do not have it together. And this is what I love most about Jesus. And so if you're waiting for a moment where you'll have it all together, you probably won't. Thank God that Jesus Jesus does this, does this, does not, does not choose. Some worship, but some doubt it. And we can read the scriptures and run past the fact that Jesus let the, the doubters stay there while he gave the Great Commission. After I read verse 16, I was looking for verse 17, Jesus to be like, all right, doubters, you need to leave because the worshipers, I need to give them this command. But Jesus starts the church with weak and feeble and sometimey people. And that is so interesting for us. Now, there's one more thing that I want to point out about verse 16 and verse 17. I want to point out the fact that Jesus is about to commission these men. They don't have any money. They don't have any buildings. They don't have any programs. They don't have coffee sitting up waiting. They don't have a marketing plan. They don't have Instagram. By the way, your Instagram is hot. I just started looking at it a couple nights ago. Your Instagram is dope. They don't have Instagram. They don't have a marketing plan. They don't even have a budget. All they have is some worshipers. They have some doubters, and they have a command from Jesus. And Jesus says, get out there and plant my church and make my bride and make us look good. Now, before we go to verse 18... It's important for you to understand something about the Great Commission. Yes, I titled this sermon a command to the church, and the Great Commission is a command, but it's important for you to know before we read verse 18 that Jesus starts the Great Commission and the command to the church not by commanding us to do anything. He starts the Great Commission with a claim. And verse 18, hear me, if verse 18 is not true, there is no hope of us fulfilling verse 19 and verse 20. If verse 18 is not true, I'm not sure why we're gathered here today. Like, let's pack up the coffee. Let's put the communion away. Let's put our money together and start an In-N-Out Burger in Brooklyn. There's no reason for us to be gathered if verse 18 is not true. Please look at me with verse 18. Or look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice Jesus does not make a command here. Jesus starts the Great Commission with a claim. And the the command that Jesus is about to make rests on the claim that Jesus just made in verse 18. All authority has been given to me. Note the word all. If you write in your Bible, circle all, draw a line out to the margin and write wow, put a smiley face around the word all, because that is very important. Why? Because if Jesus just claimed all authority, can we all agree that we have none? Jesus claims all authority. That means he doesn't have 90 and you have 10. 
He doesn't have 50 and the elders have 50. He's not divided in his authority between him and the Pope. Jesus just claimed all authority. That means that you and I have none, which is good news for us because our king just claimed all authority. That is absolutely good news. Notice Jesus doesn't say all power. Jesus does not claim all power. Why? Because power and authority are two different things. Authority supersedes power. Last week was Super Bowl Sunday, and I think the world got to witness arguably one of the greatest comebacks, whether you are a Patriots fan or not. That was one of the greatest comebacks that uh, we have ever ever seen. But one of the things I noticed when I was watching the Super Bowl was just how big these dudes was and, and how skillful they were and how powerful they were. In fact, I did, I preached a, uh, a Dallas Cowboys chapel service a couple years ago. And when the guys started coming in, I kid you not, some of their arms were bigger than my entire body. <laughs> and so when I'm watching these guys come in, I'm realizing like how powerful they are. I mean, on the field, they are the most powerful players. But you know who has authority on the field? Not the football players, the guys in the black and white stripes. Like, think about this. The, the referees are not more powerful than the players. Like, these, ref, these players have multi-million dollar contracts. They have tons of fans. They probably have a shoe contract. I mean, they have all t different types of endorsement deals. I mean, they are, they have, they can bench press 700 pounds. I don't know if you know that, but that is actually the, the most weight that any NFL player has ever bench pressed. They can bench press 700 pounds, and all the referee has is a whistle. <laughs> but here's authority. The referee has the ability, no matter how strong and better the player is more than him, the referee has the ability to penalize the player and even kick the player out of the game. That's authority. What Jesus just claimed in verse 18 is that type of authority over all of the universe, except no commissioner's ruling or no instant replay can trump over what Jesus has claimed his authority over. But I'm not just rejoicing. When I read this verse earlier this week, I was not just rejoicing over the fact that Jesus just claimed all authority. I'm also rejoicing at the sphere of his authority. Look back at the text with me in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, look at the sphere in heaven and on earth. It's important. If we're going to understand the command of Jesus, it's important for us to understand the authority that Jesus claims in heaven and on earth. When he says heaven, he's talking about all of the angelic world. That's the archangel Michael, that's Gabriel and a host of angels. But here's the interesting thing. That's also Satan and all of his demonic influences. Revelations 12, remember, Satan himself was an angel. Jesus just claimed all authority, even over the demonic world. Now, I know you're sitting here like, well, I don't believe you. I don't even know who you are. And you're just saying stuff out of the out of context. Well, let me back that up with some Bible. I don't know if you remember the story in Luke chapter four, when Jesus was going to Capernaum and Jesus gets to Capernaum. This is a, a city in Israel. Jesus gets there and there's a man who has a demonic influence or is possessed by some type of demon. When Jesus gets there, if you don't mind, I love to read it really quickly. If you're writing notes or flipping around Luke chapter four, Jesus gets to Capernaum 
And he says something amazing. Verse 33, it says, and in the synagogues, there was a man who had a spirit, an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. This is what the demon said. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One. But Jesus rebuked him and saying, watch the authority. This is what Jesus says. Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him to the ground, he came out of him, having done him no harm. The demon didn't argue back. The demon didn't say, no, I'm staying here longer. Jesus said, come out, and the demon comes out. But watch what the crowd says in verse 36 of Luke chapter 4. Then the crowd says, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And so what Jesus is claiming in verse 18, when he says, I have all authority in heaven, He's not just saying he has some type of a control in heaven. No, he has authority even over the demonic world. Can I tell you why you should be rejoicing about that? Because most of the battles that you and I fight are not natural physical battles. Most of the battles that you wrestle with are spiritual battles. Ephesians chapter 6, where we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Jesus claimed all authority over the spiritual world. But note the sphere. He doesn't just say in heaven. What does the rest of the verse say? It says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's everything we can see. That's that boss you don't like. That's the kids that are unruly. Jesus claimed not just authority over the angelic world, but he says, I have authority even over the earth. You know why that's important for church plants? Because Jesus just claimed authority over L.A. Jesus just claimed authority over your next door neighbor that does not know Jesus. Jesus claimed authority over the coworker that you've been sharing the gospel with. That's why starting with the claim of the Great Commission is so important because we get to rest on what Jesus claims. He claims all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this claim that Jesus makes really is a claim of deity. What do I mean by that? That means this is really Jesus saying, I am God. How do I know that? Because no prophet ever spoke like this. In Brooklyn, New York, which is where I get the auspicious opportunity to serve, the Kingdom Hall, the headquarters for Jehovah's Witness is in the Dumbo section of Brooklyn, where they make their watchtowers and send them across the world is right in Brooklyn. And whenever you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, the first thing they'll tell you is Jesus is just a prophet. But when I read places like like verse 18, you cannot read verse 18 and walk away and say he's just one of the boys. You cannot read verse 18 and walk away and say he's merely a prophet. No prophet in all of Scripture ever claimed all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus is not simply some prophet. He's not. He is claiming deity right here. He is claiming I am absolutely God because only God can have all authority in heaven and only God can have all authority on earth. Now, let's get to the command. We've rested in the claim, which is important for us. Now, let's get to the command that Jesus makes. Please look at verse 19 with me. I told you the scriptures kind of just preach to themselves. Verse 19, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let me lift up the first part of that verse. Verse 19, go, therefore, and make 
disciples. Notice Jesus here does not say, go and make converts. Jesus saves. The church's job is to disciple. And if you've, if you've trusted Jesus, no matter if you trusted him five minutes ago or you trusted him 20 years ago, all of us should be in the process of disciple making. That means somebody should be walking alongside of you and you should be walking alongside of somebody else. The Christian life was never meant to live in isolation. Isolation, if you read Proverbs 18.1, it says, it says, he whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. Isolation is what we do when we send people that can't operate in the community, we send them to jail. And when they can't operate in jail, we send them to solitary confinement. Isolation is not cool. But the Bible just says, go and make disciples. Don't make converts, but I need you to make disciples. I have two young men here with me uh, today, and I'm walking along a process with them in discipleship. But I am also being discipled, even through the process of walking along side of somebody else. Jesus makes it a command to the church. We ran past the first word, which was very important in verse number 19. Go. The New Testament was written in a language called Greek. And when you read the original language of go, what it really is saying in the original language is as you are going or as you are traveling. And so as we are doing life, we should be making disciples. As we are doing life, we should be baptizing. And so when it says go here, that means the church cannot be a place where we say, unbelievers, come to the church. The church must go to the world. You, does your neighbor know that, you're, that you've trusted Jesus? That's what he says when he says, as you are going. And my generation usually pushes against this idea. What we want to do, especially in Brooklyn, is we want to compartmentalize church. We want to compartmentalize Christianity, I should say. We want to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm only a Christian on Sunday. What about Monday through Saturday? As you are going is what the scripture just told us. It told us to push hard, go. But it doesn't just say go and make disciples. Look at what else it says. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, I love that you guys do baptism here again. Like I said in the beginning of my talk is that baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's something that Jesus has commanded for the church to do. But baptism takes place when a non-believer has trusted in Jesus. We then identify them with the body by baptizing them, which identifies them with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so baptism is a natural response to being saved, to being converted. And if that is the case, what Jesus is saying underneath this text is that the Great Commission can only be fulfilled when lost people meet Jesus. Notice it says baptism, and baptism and conversion typically go together. And so what Jesus is saying is you cannot fulfill the Great Commission by swapping members from different churches. You cannot fulfill the Great Commission. And I don't know if you know this, but 70% of church growth in America grows by transferred growth, meaning one person leaves one church and goes to another. And of course, we'll have that, especially church plants. In fact, we need healthy believers to come and be a part of starting a church. But if our only goal is to reach believers to come to the church, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission says, Go and baptize, which means we need to see lost people meet Jesus. 
Like, how beautiful would it be if this church began to fill up with people that were blind to the gospel, with people whose hearts were dead? There's no greater miracle than seeing a dead heart made alive. There's no greater miracle than seeing the scales of blinded eyes removed to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The scripture just told us, listen, go and make disciples. But I also want you baptizing, which means I want you sharing the gospel so lost people can meet Jesus so that we can fill the Great Commission. If we're just transferring members, we're not being faithful to what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is no, get out there and make disciples and baptize. But he gives us one more important fact about the church, or I should say important command. He told us already to make disciples. He told us already to baptize, but he says something else in verse number 20. Let me read 19 into 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, teaching them. Jesus just showed us that one of the commands that he is giving to the church is for the church to be teaching. And what do we teach? We teach the gospel message found in all 66 books. That is what we teach, which is why I, I love this church. So I told the band while we were praying in the back that I've been Facebook stalking you guys, but I've also been on you guys, and I'm, I'm so serious when I say that. I've also been on you guys' website. Earlier today, I was clicking around on your website, and one of the things that I was not surprised about, but I love to see, is when I clicked on your beliefs, one of the first professing beliefs that your pastors has here is a priority on the Bible. I was blown away, again, not surprised, but I was blown away when I saw that. In fact, let me read what's already on your website. I'm not making any of this up. On your website, it says this. It says, we believe in the Bible to be the inspired, infallible, authoritative, and inerrant word of God. I am so grateful for churches that put the Bible, the teaching of the word of God, as a priority. I opened the drawer today at the hotel, and when I opened it, there's two books in there. There was a Bible... And there was a book that I guess the hotel deems is on the same level, which is a book of Mormons. And it blew me away because back in the day, they used to have the, just the Bible in the hotel. But now they have two different books. There was a group of young ladies that used to go to our church when we were still in the core team phase. And these young ladies were coming from a different church. And they began to explain their church to me. And I said, well, you know, where, where's the church at? And they were telling me it was right down the street. And I said, well, what, is, what do you guys teach? And they started to tell me that they were very welcoming and they allowed all different types of religions. And I'm like, okay, so what do you guys teach? And they're like, well, we teach from a bunch of different books. And I'm like, okay, what, is, what does that mean? And so it's not a Christian church. It's, a, it's called the Spiritual Worship Center. And so I go on their website and they had five books, five books that were listed as authoritative alongside of the Bible. And one of them was a book on poems. Like I love Maya Angelou, but her writings aren't <laughs> They're not like on the same level as the scriptures. But this church used the moment of preaching or teaching or talking. They used this moment to preach from poems and other self-help therapeutic books. Listen, what grows a healthy church is the teaching of the word of God. Notice that Christ made it a priority for the church to be teaching. This is what you saw in the early church. Remember Acts chapter 2, if you have any familiarity with the scriptures, Acts chapter 2 verse 42, after 3,000 souls get added to the church, the scripture goes on to say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Love that. And so 
What you should get every single time that you come in this place is the word of God. And I'm confident after sitting down at breakfast today talking to Pastor Lorenzo and Pastor Casey, one of the things I picked up quickly is that they had a serious passion about the word of God. I wouldn't go any church that doesn't trust and depend and lean on the scriptures, but this church does. It's smack dead in front on your website. You know what else is on your website? Second Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof and instructions and righteousness, and it's important for correction. Notice the word all, all scripture. That's what, if there's one thing I hate more than bad teaching is selective teaching. Notice what Jesus says in verse 20. Teach them to observe. Here is an all-inclusive word again. All. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. He doesn't say teach them some. He says teach them all. Teach them the breadth of the scriptures. All of what the Bible has to say, which is why I rejoice when I went on your website and saw 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And so we are to teach, but Jesus also gives us the goal of teaching. In the scripture, Jesus does not tell us and command the church just to teach, just to teach. But he commands us to teach for a goal. Look at the scripture again, verse 20. Teach them to observe. And so in other words, we're not teaching for you to just memorize. Your pastors are teaching for you to apply. That's why he says, teach them to observe. I loved what Pastor Lorenzo said when he got up here and he said, yeah, we read it, we hear it, and then I think he said something like, we apply it, we live it. That is such an important piece. And what he's basically saying is what the scripture is saying right here. Jesus says, teach them to observe. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. If I told my boys to go clean the dishes and they came back to me an hour later, and said, we memorized everything you said. You said, go clean the dishes. We, we even had a small group of friends come over and study the Greek and the Hebrew of what cleaning dishes meant. If I go to the kitchen and the dishes aren't clean, they weren't obedient, but they memorized. And lately what our generation does is we want to memorize intellectually what the scriptures say, but what would it look like for you to be just as passionate to obey what the scripture says? First question when you walk out of these doors should be, how can I apply that? Whatever message is being taught from the word of God, how can I apply it? How can I apply it? Let me get in my small groups so that somebody's holding me accountable for applying the word of God. Jesus just told us here, teach them to observe. And so what we see here is that Jesus makes a claim. All authority has been given to me. He's given us a command, go and make disciples, go baptize, make sure the church is teaching. Now he lands the plane by giving us comfort. Watch the comfort that he gives us in the rest of verse 20. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, these are the greatest five words. I am with you always. See, this is, this is what I love about Jesus, is that Jesus does not see these worshipers and some doubters and tell them to get out there on their own. But Jesus ends the claim and the command by saying, I'm with you. So that means, hear me, collective church, you do not plant this church alone. You do not disciple alone. 
You do not go through hardships alone. You do not share the gospel with your unbelieving family and friends alone. Jesus just said, I'm with you. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I used to be with you. He's not promising a time that he will be with them. This is a present reality. I am with you. And I don't just get excited over the fact that Jesus says, I'm with you. I also get excited over the perpetual nature of Jesus being with you. I told you to circle this word, but look at it again. I am with you always. So there's never a moment that Jesus is not with you. And so collective church, as you continue to build this church in health and in number, note that Jesus is always with you, no matter what this church goes through. No matter, and you will go through some rocky stuff, but no matter what the devil throws your way, Jesus says, but I'm with you. And I'm not just with you sometimes. Scripture just said that he's with us always. Here's the beauty. Only the person that has trusted in the person and the work of Jesus can accept that claim that he's with us always. And if you have not trusted in Jesus If you want to accept this claim that he's with you always, there's one way to do that. Not two or three ways. Jesus isn't the better of 10 different options. He's the only option. And so what he does is he goes to a cross over 2,000 years ago and literally takes all of, there's two things that happens. One, he takes all of your sin. Not some, but all of your sin, past, present, and future. Jesus takes on the cross and absorbs it. And Jesus and God the Father does something beautiful on your behalf. He crushes his son for your sin. The second thing he does, which is just as beautiful, is he makes a trade with you. He takes your sin, but then he gives you his righteousness. What do I mean by that? He gives you his perfection. Do you know that Jesus walked this earth for 33 years without ever sinning? And why is that important? Because when you and I stand before the Father, we have, to be, we have to stand before the Father blameless. Like, think of you and think of blameless. Think of you and think of spotless. But if you've trusted in Jesus, when God the Father sees you, you'll hear words like holy, blameless, spotless. Not because you've done anything great, but because Jesus has done all for you. And we get to, that's what I love about the gospel. The gospel says that the innocent is condemned, but the guilty get to walk free. And we get to walk free because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Every head bow and every eye closed.